This is Dr. David Brock, and I'm back again for another episode of the What's Up Cuz podcast with the one and only, always gorgeous, always ready, intelligent, beautiful, vivacious, the one and only, Dr. Sharon McDaniel is here with me in studio. What's up, cuz? What's up, cuz? How you doing? I'm well. I'm well. How about you? I'm doing fine. You know, I tell you, every time that I come, you keep on adding, you know, more adjectives and characteristics i'm like hmm i like showing up here so, <laughs> so how are you doing I'm well you know what no complaints i'm fortunate and i'm blessed you know i have health and strength and all is well you know i have nothing to complain about you know i, I told somebody the other day if god does any more for me it's just not gonna be fair to everybody else but i'm <laughs> i'm letting him do it you know i'm telling you no complaints. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing well. I um, have some traveling coming up, but um doing really well. Just trying to get some things together. I've been doing some purging, if you will, of my closets and those sorts Ooh. of things. Yeah. Oh, so that's, Making that's, room for new stuff. You know oh, that. Okay, because purging those closets. I've seen them. I'm still in therapy after visiting <laughs> one of your closets. And so I think I got two more <laughs> sessions, and that was two years ago. But I think I got two sessions left. And uh, oh, if you've been purging, I'm, it's a wonder that you made it out today. <laughs> well, I've been giving lots of things away to our clothing bank and um, just really grateful that I have an opportunity just to to sew into others different things and um, again being very intentional about what I am purchasing in my big old age. You yeah. know? <laughs> Listen, I, I, I get it. I get it. You know, I, I went out there and Valentine's Day my wife took me. Anybody knows I know that you know, but people may not know that I am like one of the biggest fans of Toomey. I love Toomey, everything. And so when you know he's bad, when you walk in the Toomey store and you're looking around saying, I don't need that. I have that. Mm-hmm. I have that. I guess got that. And so she gave me a gift card and I'm standing there like a kid with a candy store because now I got to use this gift card. So, you know, I told her, I said, uh, I'm going to go back and I'm going to exchange what I did get for uh-huh. something else. But I'm like you now. Yeah, now. They're, they're, they're probably making are, it just you for know? you. <laughs> I told, and I told the lady, I said, I'm not coming back in here anymore. And she said, okay, see you later. <laughs> so she, she didn't believe me, but you know, right. I'm, I'm trying to get that way too. And being more intentional about what I do and what I purchase or whatever else. Cause you know, I've yeah, got some travel coming up and, um, looking forward to traveling. And I know, even though when I travel, I say I'm not going to purchase anything, but I know what happens when I'm over in Europe and I end up purchasing something. So I got a plan this time. Oh, do you? Yes, I got a plan. Because I believe last time you had to buy a suitcase to Uh, bring the things Uh, that... Well, a little bit, a little bit. But but this time what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to go Uh and I'm going to only take a few things in my suitcase so that I don't have to buy a suitcase. See, that way... 
no one can say I had to buy one to come home. I'll just fill it up. That's there, right. So. Okay. All righty. Well, we'll see how that works out for you. Yes, indeed. Well, we're here again, and we're so gracious and so um, so grateful, I should say, to be able to have this moment and space and time to just talk and again bring to our audience those things that are relevant to our communities. We are unapologetic about focusing on our African American community. We mm-hmm. want them to be educated and to know and informed. And so here we are in February, and we know that they say February is Black History Month. To me, it's every day and it's yes. all day because I'm black 24 7. So, mm-hmm. you know, th- 29 days this year or 28 days in other times uh, does not make black history for me. It is something that I live and breathe every day. And so we are here to talk about a wonderful topic and subject. So, why don't you kind of just lead us into that? Sure. Um, as you said, you know, we are unapologetically black every day um, in this United States of America. And what we thought we would do was center conversation today about what it's like to center black history in the church, in the black church, mm-hmm. in um, a school environment, and also in a nonprofit. Because our guest today, Dr. Evan Destin, who's a scholar and of black history and a history teacher, he really has impressed me about his knowledge overall. Um, his parents are from Haiti, and he was the first um, U.S.-born citizen. But he, he has this juxtaposition of understanding his Haitian culture and how it informs um, African-American uh, culture and the intersection between. And as a history teacher, he's been able to look at his own culture, his parents' culture, his culture, and the United States black history. So we're really grateful to have him today. And as I sit as a founder, president, and CEO of an organization, and as a black woman, how my blackness has shown up and why history is important. And certainly you as a bishop of a church um, in the denomination, how do you see black history as you um, deal with your parishioners every day, every um, weekday, whether it's Bible study, whether it's church. So just wanted to be able to um, center those different places and see how black history shows up for us. That's excellent. I'm excited mm-hmm. about the conversation. Uh, as you know, this is not his first time on our podcast, and he always brings such uh, relevant uh, information and makes you think. And every time he talks, he has gives you that uh, aha moment. So he I'm does. looking forward to uh, what he has to share with us. So uh, without further ado, we're grateful and we are going to introduce or present our guest. He's already here and on with us. But hey, sir, why don't you greet us and say hello? Hello, everybody. I'm so happy. Um, thank you for this invitation, uh, Dr. Sharon and also Dr. Brock. I am, you know, I, I really value when there, when my voice can add to an ongoing dialogue that I know that um, What's Up Cuz does foster day in or every week, if you will. So I really appreciate you all um, welcoming me to the table. Oh, you are so welcome. We couldn't think about anybody else. Um, other than your colleague, Dr. Dyer, you two are tag, you, t- you tag team. Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me, for the both of you, we could not think of a better person to help us just really talk about this important um, issue. You know, so again, as Dr. Brock said, we get, um, you know, a month that we have black history. You know, I, I see the commercials buy black and all that. We should be buying black all the time. And so it shouldn't be that we're set aside for, you know, this year's a leap year. So 29 days 
that we can think about who we are as um, um, people of the diaspora. And so we just wanted to really center on this conversation. We have four critical questions that each of us are going to take, and we we have them. But I wanted to start with you, um, Dr. Destin, in terms of our questions, and then we'll go to Dr. Brock and then myself. So why is knowing and honoring black history important to you in the space that you work and serve? Well, you know, it's extremely important because for me, it's a testament to the survival of black people. Um, When we think of things that we honor and, you know, the achievements of black people, while they are achievements and contributions to our society, um, it's a testament of trying to make this place livable and habitable for a place that we had not intended to have been brought over. And I think that any effort that's been done, given our situation to now be in a place that often can be very unlovable, to me, ought to be framed in, 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 in such a way. And I say it that way because um, when we think of the contributions that Black Americans have made, um, it has this sort of... Uh, I guess you might say an air of aspirational, like we, we we want to aspire to contribute to such institutions that are in existence, but, but also those institutions can also be the same ones that sort of subjugate us and oppress mm, us, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. So when you frame it in a way that's uh, more about a mark of survival, it's it's what we do in light of the fact that some of those ways can hurt us but we're trying to frame it in a way that says it's what we can do. Mm -hmm. And it keeps us away from having to um, valorize or celebrate um, things that hurt us or hurt us as a community, if that makes sense. Oh, it absolutely does. I really like what you said. You know, you said a couple of words that really um, resonated with me, the whole notion of being in a space where we feel unloved, unlovable, right? And um, then this whole notion of, what does aspiration look like in that same space, right? So you're unloved, but then yet you're supposed to also aspire to be. So creating and and having those two positions in the same space, the tension, if you will, um, between that. How can I love something or how can I be aspirational and think about how do I reimagine in the same space that is unloving toward me? Mm. Yeah, that's powerful. <laughs> that is definitely powerful. And Dr. Brock, what about you? So I know that, um, you know, when, when I think about your um, Saturday morning prayer, your Thursday um, Bible study, and then your Sunday service, and I know the majority of your parishioners are um, African-American, um, but I do know that, I, that you are open to other cultures coming in. How, why is this important to you? Why is black history important to you and the church and what you do? Well, I think uh, for me, the reason why it is is so important is it, it does, as uh, Dr. D said, it does uh, celebrate and recognize the significant contributions that African-Americans have made. I was thinking about this in preparation for our time together, and I just began to think and. Uh, you know, many of the hymns and the songs that are sung 
uh, in uh, churches that are in that have been penned in hymn books have uh, come as a result of 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 Black history, of slavery, and other things that were written while our people were suffering. You know, and some of the ones that we we sing uh, to this day, uh, a lot of times this new generation and those behind us don't necessarily even know where they came from. Mm-hmm. So, you know, somebody once said, if you don't know your past, you won't know your future. So, you know, if that be the case, it's important that we remember uh, the legacy of our black leaders and the uh, uh, activists and those who played pivotal roles in shaping our abilities to worship and be free. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. every culture, every country doesn't have that. And we have the ability to be Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, evangelical, whatever you want to be. But all of those things were paved by our forefathers who suffered to make it possible. You know, and so I think it's important for me that we continue to, um, emphasize the contributions of our forefathers. And yes, we, you know, I'm grateful that our church is a multicultural church, but as you said, the the dominating percentage is Mm -hmm. African-Americans. And so we also use that to teach us how to embrace other cultures. You know, don't become a victim of a past. And as he said, love, when he said love, that's the name of our church, love fellowship. Mm -hmm. But, But how do we allow uh, the love of God to to really dwell in us to the degree that we can embrace other cultures and not look at them and try to hold them accountable for what their forefathers right. did. So, mm-hmm. so that's why it's important to me. And so, and I I punt back to you. You know, this is a question you walk in many many spaces and places and the things that you do, uh, and you cross all sectors of individuals and all cultures. And you have to navigate so many spaces. Mm -hmm. This is because I know about you personally. I know you have to navigate so many spaces, so many places as a black woman, as a businesswoman, as a leader, you got many hats, but you have to know how to, uh, uh, which hat to pick up, what talent to use, what thing to say and how to be, but you can never step out of being a black woman, Mm -hmm. but yet you have these spaces. So why is this important? Why is black, history important for you as you navigate all these spaces well you know i think that centering the whole notion of being a black woman in these spaces is really important because i didn't always have the words or the language to understand my intersectionality i didn't understand you know i would show up as a black woman in white spaces and would get a reaction and you know black women tend to be labeled as bossy or aggressive or angry I'm like hmm the fact that I'm having an opinion makes me all of these things and so what was important to me was for me to study about about the um, contributions if you will of black women and very often even in so from slavery to civil rights black women were always advocates and in in were the um the forebears, if you will, very often of movements, but they didn't get the credit, right? And so I just wanted to understand how does one show up in their truth and understand how you move forward knowing that that intersectionality will get in the way for some people. So when I think about you know, Bell Hooks, when I think about um, Audre Lloyd, when I think about Alice Walker, when I think about so many women, you know, Shirley Chisholm, and I go, we can go on, Harriet Tubman, we can go on and on and on. Their contributions to our society 
That's what was important to me. What would my contribution to the nonprofit space in our society be through the lens of these black women um, who have gone before me with understanding how of how my intersectionality, my social location, my um, just being will make a difference or not, or certainly be judged. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we've had this conversation and like I said, I've, I've, I've seen you uh, navigate those spaces and never, never step out of who you are. And, and so that's, that's, that's well, you really can't, great. I mean, I think that, um, you know, and I, and I, the, uh, the reason why I think having Dr. Um, Destin here is so important because this is his body of work, studying about black history, um, studying about what it's like to be, um, you know, black in America. When I think about his work, um, just resonates with me that we have to understand where we, where we are, our positionality and where we stand and where we would not equivocate. And so for mm. me, understanding that intersectionality and I will not allow, I will no longer allow the, that internal oppression that we felt because of our social locations and positions in America to define me any longer. So I had to do some unlearning, but I, I also had to do some learning. Right. Right, right, right. And so, um, so Dr. Destin, as we think about this whole notion of learning, how is it that the work that you do has really created this notion of diversity, equity, equity, inclusion, inclusion and belonging? Because I put belonging on there because we have this in America, we talk about DEI, but you know, I think it's just a catchphrase. So I talk about anti-racism. I talk about um, understanding how blackness can and sometimes be uh, intimidating. So how do you in your space lift up diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging um, for, so for your students, if you will, and then how does it then inform your work with your children and your community? Well, I, it does begin with, well, I should say that I, I now teach in a capacity as a teacher uh, in, a, in a private school. I teach a history course, uh, a couple of courses, but, but a main course I do teach, or one of the courses I teach is an African-American history class. I've also taught in university as well. And um, it begins with certainly honoring the past. And, I, and in the spirit in which uh, Dr. Brocken, as well as, uh, as you've kind of pointed out in honoring that past, I do want to kind of give... Um, you know, Carter G. Woodson, his flowers for, yes. for even starting a week. And so uh, let me um, just give a little bit, just a history's bottom is that, um, and especially being a history teacher, I certainly would, would want to make sure I recognize his um, major contribution to, um, to America here. And is that, yes, he was a prominent historian, you know, um, it's important to know that he was the second African-American to receive a PhD from Harvard after W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I find it interesting that W.E.B. Du Bois got in 1895 and that the second person to receive the Ph.D. is like 1912. So you get like 17 wow. years before you get a second person mm. to get it. Um, that just goes to say about what it was like in, you know, going up in institutions that are predominantly white, particularly at a Harvard. But also um, he had been a teacher at some point. And so he knew what it was like to mold the minds of young, of young, you know, young people um, before he even became a professor. You know, it's not until really around, you know, um, 19, 19 or 20, where he is now working in like Howard University as a professor. 
Um, he eventually would create an association um, that was dedicated for the negle- you know for the neglect of Black history. Like it, it's in its mission mm. to to say that we we are focused on the study of the neglected piece of history, mm. which of course would um, you know be the precursor to his um, his move to launch a Negro History Week uh, in 1926. Um, and of course, he does this, and uh, he launches this in February, in in knowing or at least um, in observance of the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Um, and how fitting is it that only a historian would notice that, right? right. The birthdays have <laughs> coincided. That's exactly that he right. would realize, right? That these two significant individuals um, would um, would have their birthdays in the same month, and why not, right? Um, but also that, you know, it would take until 1976 until Gerald Ford, President, um, American President Gerald Ford, to extend it in part because he wanted to increase his outreach to the black community, mm-hmm. but also because of the advocacy of the organization that Carter G. Woodson had founded, uh, which was the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, that they pushed for it, that this now became something that would become a month-long experience that would now you know, that we now celebrate, and especially in 1976 being the 200th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence of America. So I just kind of wanted to take a, take a moment to, to pause there and to just kind of um, honor the fact that Carter G. Wilson did do something for the purpose of overlooked history of Black people's contributions. Um, and, uh, and, and one fact, too, to point out, um, you know, a lot of people like to celebrate Martin Luther King's um, efforts in Black history, in mm-hmm. during Black History Month. Um, which in a way is somewhat of a lazy effort because Martin Luther King's F, you know, birthday is January 20th right. and he has his own day. Mm-hmm. But because it's so close to February, you have this sort of um, confusion at times of like, oh, let's do something for him. So it's, it's really incorrect to really think that that birthday, that that month was in some way uh, connected to him. But that does do happen. Mm-hmm. But to your question, you know, how do I see um, this learning? How do I do it in my own classroom? Um, I, I think it's, I think these days it's difficult in this current political environment to do so, uh, or at least it requires a lot of rethinking, you know? Um, so perhaps before a few years, uh, a few years ago, I probably would have approached the class very differently because I felt much more freer. I think teachers feel much more freer to kind of include, um, topics in their, um, in, in a teaching of black history that was was accepted to to you know as acceptable way to engage um, the conversation of racism, conversation of differences of people. Clearly, now um, in a in a in a world where, as I was just reading about what happened in Miami, where there are permission slips kind of being sent out to uh, parents to see whether or not it'd be okay for their children to read a book from a black author. Um, this tells you already, like mm-hmm. permission slips to read from black people. Um, it's a quite interesting thing that's happening in Miami-Dade public schools right now. But it just goes to show of just how difficult it is to 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 um, to, to work in this environment. Now, um, I have found ways to to do it in terms of biography. This is a, a this is actually a contribution of um, uh, or an idea of uh, Dr. Dyer, who he's um, got me into thinking about biography, where it's it's harder to teach when you teach it by topic but you cannot deny someone's biography, mm. right? So one's biography cuts through the humanity or goes and talks about a topic. You find yourself having to deal with someone's history that is irrefutable. 
right? You may have people who can debunk ideas, ideologies, mm-hmm. concepts, critical race theory, whatever it may be, those ideas, that, that may be so. But when it's through someone's biography, that's good. You have to confront that this is their life mm-hmm. and you don't know their life more than they do. Um, and so through biography is one of the best ways to engage this work in the classroom. And then, of course, um, through feedback and reactions of students, um, I think you get that. I think that's what comes out of that, um, if that makes sense. No, it does. I mean, that is so brilliant. And, you know, so the other scholar that we love and adore, Dr. Irvin Dyer. Um, so what has the reaction been from the students since you've kind of shifted the way in which you are approaching um, the conversation? Have you had any feedback yet? Now, um, that's a great question, because I think that while we can talk about the importance of teaching Black history in the classroom, we don't talk about or talk enough about the uphill climb it takes to prepare the environment to engage such topics. Mm. And what I mean by that is that for students, while I have means to have them engage such topics, what you find is that... um, what you find is that many of them, um, for history, for them, Black history is whatever's happened within the past 10 years. So there's need to be engagement of what's happening now for them to have, to, for them to feel invited to talk about the past, about Black history. And you can imagine that when, when they're in the classroom not hearing, how do you make sense of what's going on now? Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to feel disengaged, yes. you know? So I can bring a biography of, you know, a uh, Marcus Garvey or of a James Baldwin, but it's so distant for them mm-hmm. that, that it doesn't resonate so well. And so eventually what you have to do as a teacher is that you find yourself having to make opportunities for them to engage what's happening now and make some connections in the past so that the biography that seems distant seems all the more familiar like that's something i'm similar you know i have i'm grappling with those similar questions that so-and-so is right but that's only if those questions are connecting to what's happening now so i think that that's what happens that the work that while we can come up with creative ways and point out the importance of certain uh, topics and certain people for their achievements that they've made in the classroom it becomes an extra task to now work through the political environment to get them to feel that things are connecting. If you don't have that, and, and given that it's now become tougher because of the way our politics has been, you now have more, so you know, quote unquote, landmines that you have to avoid to um, with students who may feel, especially, right, you can't have all black students. We can't have a class that's entirely black student. You can have a predominantly black class, but not by law because we don't, you know, laws don't allow for that. But so you do have people in the classroom who may not um, resonate with that material because the cl- the political climate dictates it to be a bit more volatile or hostile to such topics. So I'd, so I'd say the reaction so far has been uh, a lot more work, a little of Black history that can be taught and work through the conversations to get people to a place to finally say that there's more to be learned. And, you know, one class ain't going to solve it at all. No, and as you were speaking, I was thinking about James Baldwin and what would he say about this current moment is a thing that he talked about throughout his life you know so the fact of the matter is that the contributions 
of James Baldwin speaks to the day's events because it's just been, you know, every decade we go through an iteration, mm-hmm. but it's the thing that he talked about and his scholarship has been about, about the whole rejection of blackness. And that too, <laughs> that, was, that, was a, that was a moment yeah, because I guess he just wanted to say, listen, but in this moment, the whole idea is what James Baldwin. So when you think about his work, it is it is in the present moment. It is in the present moment that I could see the intersection, the the struggle, the life is still ever ever present. And for young people, they wouldn't have an have a clue about that. But I see it very clearly through the lens of his biography. And so I think um, I'm I'll be curious to see how this um, unfolds, but I I think it's pretty incredible and remarkable that you've approached it this way. And the learning environment will shift because I think you will bring um, such an extraordinary way in which the offering is um, revealed that people will be more curious about it. So thank you, Dr. Destin, for that. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. I I don't know if you wanted to respond about my sort of observation about Baldwin in this moment because I I just see it so clearly. Oh, for sure. Um, if that, that it'd be a recommendation of mine to go ahead and read his work, um, you know, particularly Fire Next, The Fire Next Time in 1963, yes. his piece. But um, yes, I certainly I think that, and it'd probably be helpful to say just a little bit about Baldwin really quick. Here is that um, one way of kind of describing his ideas is uh, the idea that America's hung up on its racial innocence, right? The idea that, um, that there is a, there, there is white America, people who embrace whiteness, those who embrace it, who pass, who benefit from its, um, from its privilege, not those who fight and who fight the tides of it, you know, tides of racism day to day, but for those who embrace it for sure, what you find is that, um, that they're hung up over this idea that there's no way uh, you know, my people could have made such a, you know, made such an era in human judgment. Mm-hmm. There's no way things like this could have been done. There's no way that we could have lynched. We could have done what we did to Emmett Till. So this this denial is what really is the big, as Bolton might say, hangover that prevents us from moving forward. Uh, and what you find is that it has an impact on both being the oppressor on themselves because they're denying something that they should engage and confront because when you know there's a lie and you don't engage that lie, it eats you up inside, guilt builds. And then for those who are being inflicted with this, you know, with this myth and this lie, they themselves um, start to not know what reality is. And they either succumb to believing that they are what, what the myth says about them as being the N word or being someone who uh, is less than or um, they're so confused that they fall into depression and anxiety and so on. So, so Baldwin would, be, would want to kind of end this. And so what you find here is that if that is his perspective, you can see just how, how present it is. Mm-hmm. The, the lie with, with regard to elections, the lie mm-hmm. with regard to, you know, we don't need books. We need to kind of omit what's really been in, in, in these, you know, in children's books. We need to not have people read. So he is directly, I think we are in the age of a Baldwin. Right yes. Now, you know? And that's what I, I, I would say to that. I think we are in that age right now. Yeah, I see it very clearly. And I'm just really excited about your work that's coming out that we can really, I know that you will center the current um, with the past. So I'm looking forward to um, reading that. 
And Dr. Brock, so thank you, Dr. Destin. And Dr. Brock, as we think about how um, DEIB works in the church, if you will, um, the whole idea of loving and, and, and moving beyond and lifting and having people be- belong, how does this work for you as you preach and teach every week and every day? Well, for me, um, I was listening to so many of the uh, prolific statements that Dr. D just and I as was always, like, right? And I hit the wrong <laughs> button trying to make to write, not realizing I was writing on top of the controller and turned on the theme music. So y'all just free, forgive me. That was all me. But he he he's, when he started talking about denial, I just had the thought that denial keeps us in bondage. Mm. Oh yes, mm-hmm. denial keeps us in bondage is what hit me. And then when I was thinking about diversity and, and inclusion uh, in the black church, uh, we still got a lot of work to do. And I say that not necessarily, we, we will grab arms and lock arms with, with our white brothers and other, you know, brothers, but we got a lot of work to do when it comes to women, mm. women mm. in ministry and accepting the fact that, you know, say I, that, I, say I, that. I got a statement that I say all the time when I, in these meetings or in these rooms, when they start talking about women, this women, that women can't for a long time, they say women can't preach women can't be in the pulpit you know women there's a scripture women are supposed to keep silent but they don't want to take the scripture in its full context and understand what that was talking about you know but again I I was thinking just recently maybe and I won't I name names because of our podcast but there was just about three weeks ago a a prolific african-american woman who spoke at a baptist convention she made history because she was the first one to speak at the convention and it was the old boys network. Mm-hmm. And she actually delivered a sermon that was a message that was very powerful mm-hmm. and caused people to have to look inwardly at what was going on. And they ended up somehow her message was deleted from all their platforms, mm. their website, their, all their everything. Mm. And it's caused a big controversy. But what it made me think about was the fact that we still have a lot of work to do to embrace women. And, and I asked a group of my colleagues one time I said well help me understand if a woman could carry the living word Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. why can't she speak about the word and when she makes up the vast majority of of the the congregation hello because listen I told somebody I don't want to be in no church filled with all men because y'all would be calling us everything but but listen okay so I just being truthful but but we have work to do so while we'll embrace another nationality and and give them the floor and let them speak we, we silence our women and, and, and I'm a part of a mainline denomination mm-hmm. that, that does not recognize women as pastors. I'm connected to them and, and mm-hmm. they don't recognize the women as pastors. They'll call them shepherd mothers mm-hmm. and all these other terms. And they won't recognize them in terms of becoming uh, um, um, bishops or uh, superintendents or leaders because they're afraid that the women will rise up and become the head of the church. Mm-hmm. If we, if we let them be a superintendent, then they'll want to be, this and if they become that then they'll want the next office and oh they become that eventually forbid, right, right? Mm-hmm. eventually their fear is that women will lead the church and if we be honest women have been leading for a long, long time, time. Mm-hmm. my mother started several churches through prayer meetings in her home she would have bible mm-hmm. study and prayer meetings and churches were birthed out of that you know right. so women have done a lot of work so for me when i stand there i embrace women we have women pastors at our church we have women elders in our church we have women deacons in our church we have i mean women to me 
the Bible says, and it can't be that there's no gender in God, mm-hmm. but there's gender here. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so so the, the, the diversity inclusion for me is me fighting this message that says women have a place. Women have a role. Women play a powerful and pivotal place in the history of our church. And they're still fulfilling roles and they still play a history. And like I said, I wouldn't want to be in a church with all men because they would be calling us names and saying things about us. So. Well, you, you know, as you as you were speaking, I was thinking about Betty Shabazz and um, Coretta uh, Scott King just to think about women in the church, whether it was the um you know, Muslim, whether it was, you know, with Islam and the nation of Islam or whether it was in the Baptist church, the fact of the matter is when, um, you know, I, I, I was reading, I can't remember what book, book I was reading or article, but when there was almost a fraction within, whether it was Martin or whether it was um, uh, over in, in Islam, uh, oh gosh, help me, help me. I'm thinking about Farrakhan, but, you know, I'm talking right, about. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. But the fact of the matter is, these were folks who were holding it down in the basements, right? Holding it down, saying, no, we will not, you know, separate. We will not, um, you know, move move forward in in a way that is not uh, cohesive, if you will. So the fact of the matter is that women have been holding it down for a very long time. They have been the silent warriors, if you will. And it's the same thing in the black church is at the end of the day, mm-hmm. um, we are still holding it down. And the, the fact of the matter is when the, the, the men show up, everything is done because they rely on the women. So I'm glad that you are thinking about what does that mean? That, that whole notion of inclusion and belonging in the black church, I think it's really, really important. And so, um, as we think about moving forward and even think about my role, um, you know, I wanted to reimagine what a nonprofit could be in a space where a black woman was running it. Um, I, in, in Allegheny County, where I'm from in Pittsburgh, I was the, um, the first black woman to run an, an organization that was focused on kinship care. And so, you know, there were many providers, but I was the first of this particular kind. And I remember, you know, I was often in meetings and um, I was not so well received because I was speaking to an unmet need in the community that people said, yes, children deserve and should be with their family. And so for me, it was just normal. It's because I was raised by my kin. Um, I was I understood the outcomes as a result of being raised by my kin, not having the trauma and the and the struggles that we see in the child welfare space. And so for me, it was just a normal thing to do. But in the larger uh, ecosystem, the dominant culture didn't understand that family matters. And when you pathologize a group of people as black folks have been pathologized within the child welfare space, the the family is often blamed for the challenge, if you will. So you know how they say the apple doesn't fall too far away from the tree is what we often hear. But I wanted to reimagine what an organization that was centered on children with their families and for a black woman to be at the helm of running this organization. And again, having to push back the stereotypes, even within the organization, because I would often say, hmm, 
if I were a white male, would I receive this particular pushback? If I were a white female, would I receive this particular um, oversight or surveillance, if you will? And so not only was it internal, but it was external, trying to negotiate. How do I create this diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, understanding my own intersectionality, understanding that um, I was receiving pushback from particularly white males because it was new, it was different, and how could she, and how does she get to the game? Right. How does she get to the table, yeah, right? That part, that part. And so being then having to be better, you know, having to um, push forward, because we've always heard we have to be 10 times better, right? And where other people, where mediocrity is okay, it has never been okay never. for never. for me, and it's, it's been taught it was never okay. So when sometimes people say, well, why do we have to be, and why are you so extra? I'm just telling you, is it extra? Or is it the way that you have to be and show up in this unloving environment, right? In this unloving Mm -hmm. space. And so I I challenge people to say, it's not so extra. It is just because. I would say it's it's necessary. It is necessary. It's not extra. It's necessary. necessary. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's, you know, Mm -hmm. so even when I show up in this moment, um, you know, and, and, and Dr. Even he sits on my board and he said, you know, Sharon, I learned so much from you and, and you're so open and you're so giving and it's the way I have mm-hmm. to be because it's my responsibility to also mm-hmm. um, teach the next generation of what I've learned. So this is not only for me, this is legacy work. This is yeah. legacy yeah. work. Yeah. It's like, how does someone yeah. else walk into this very unloving, uncaring, uh, unsupported space as yeah. a black person, right? And still yeah. be able to be more than competent, more mm-hmm. than enough, right? Because I have to recognize, girl, you more than enough. Because right. there right. was sometimes people just make you feel like you're too yeah, much. Too, right, right. You're too much. No, I'm more than enough. So I had to unlearn some things to be able to show up and belong in these spaces. I had to learn that my blackness, my black womanness was okay. And there were going to be some people who didn't like it, but this might not be the space for you. Right. That's what I had to learn to say. This might not be the space for you. Unequivocally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like to echo that. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Don't mind. It just makes me, it just made me think of this, uh, this statement by um, Nicole Hannah Jones um, when she, a lot of people, she was getting a lot of pushback for why she did not um, take the position at UNC University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill over the debacle of her not being tenured and so on and so forth. And a lot of people were saying to her that, look, you know, why aren't you, you know, like you're going to let them win. You're going to let them win. But she said, but I ain't trying to win someone else's game. Mm. sometimes so that space right that space may not be the one that you want to be may in, not be the one you want to be in well bec- so. because when i see i i think that that's so important because as we see in this current context black women are being um just br- brutally tortured in our own space right i mean people are just dehumanizing that black woman, and when I'm thinking about uh, what's happening in Georgia, when I'm thinking about what's happening in New York, when I'm thinking about what's happening to um, Nicole Hannah Jones, when I'm thinking about how black women are just being seen because of our strength as a threat. And what do we do with the threat? We neutralize it. 
Right. And so black women are under attack for a variety of reasons. But as I, as I couldn't remember Malcolm's name when I'm thinking about yes, um, uh, um, Betty Shabazz and things like that. But I'm just saying that Betty was behind that man. And, and, and it takes both, right? Because Malcolm had a, had a way, but Betty was that quiet um, person that was just allowing M- Malcolm to be all he could be. Or Coretta was that woman who was allowing um, – Martin to be all that he could be. And so what I'm saying in this current moment, black women are just saying, we are just trying to show up in spaces. So those that we love, those that we care about most can just be. Wow. That, that is, that is so powerful. And as you said, you know, women have been holding it down for forever. And when you were talking, even though it takes in other people, other cultures, I was thinking when, when we went to war, when the United States went to war, the women went to the factory. Yes, they did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and they held down the nation. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Not just a city. Kept but the they, churn going. Kept, kept the churn going. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They went into the factories and was making the bullets and making, they were doing everything to keep so that their men could return and come back, as you said. So, yes, there has been a, a long time. And, and something you said kind of made me think uh, when you started talking about the women are now seen as a threat for, for forever, the men have been seen as a threat. Mm-hmm. And and now that, that they think that they're controlling the men and now the women are coming forward, now they're like, we have to control these women. We have to shut this down because these people... Well, you yeah. know, black women have been the strongest voting block for black people forever. Yes. And so the fact of the matter is that, you know, mama going to get you to the voting. She going to get you to the polls, right? Grandma going to get you. Auntie going to get you. And so the fact of the matter is where um, when we think about the current political environment, it's like demonize the black woman, make her something that, you know, make her the new boogeyman, if you will, and or boogie woman, if you will. And um, make make her make the world seem like something is wrong with her again, pathologizing who she is. Right. So something is wrong with these women. Something is wrong in the way in which they raise their children or which in the way they date or who they marry or who they love. So make make something out of this situation so that when we now are in this political cycle that we can have that person demonized and something's wrong. So that, um, that demonization of her and that um, ability to um, just characterize her as something than that other, Mm -hmm. that thing is what the boogie woman is now. Right. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. It's just this, this conversation, uh, you know, to our listeners, we just want you to hang in there with us. Uh, we know this is a little bit longer than we normally go it's for our right. podcast, we but don't it's, even have it's to necessary. Absolutely. It is so necessary. Mm-hmm. So you all yes. just, just stay in here and, and you're going to keep learning some things as I've, I've written about five or six things already down. Uh, just from this short time together. So well, you know is, what, Dr. Yeah. Brock, I'm just going to push back. I, I want us to stop apologizing for when we have to go long, because I think that these conversations are essential in our community and people can, you know, if they have to go and pick up the baby, okay, put on some pause and then start all over, <laughs> right? But I want us to not well, apo- yeah, ap- no, apologize yeah, you know for what? us going along. I agree, I agree, you know, and, and I take that pushback, you know, because, you know, we'll sit here and I'm thinking, you know, my wife and I, we'll, we'll sit here and watch a movie for two and a half hours. yes. You know, we went to the movies on Valentine's Day, and I'm still trying to figure out what she took me to see. And, you know, because I was like, okay, I gave 
all this time and what was this about? But again, we will do things. We'll go to the movies. Right. We'll go to to walk around the mall. We'll go to the gym and do all these things. Mm-hmm. You're right. And, but when things like a critical conversation like this, we tune it out. And a lot of times we tune it out and that's what they hope we will do. Absolutely. So that oh, we yeah. don't, because as, as Dr. Dr. D was talking and he began to give me, I was learning. I was like, Oh, so that's how black history came to. Oh, I missed that, that, that lesson. That, I'm just telling I missed you. that lesson. He's but a walking yeah, encyclopedia. Yeah, he threw it out there and I was like, Oh, really? It was their birthdays. Oh, I'm, I'm learning, you know? So it's, again, in that moment, this moment, there is we're ever learning. We and, are ever and, learning. And, and this is this is a good conversation. So I, I accept that pushback willfully and wholeheartedly uh, on this subject. Well, I'm going to take us to our next question. And, and so I'm thinking about the initiatives and programs that we need to implement in the church or nonprofits or in the whether, you know, Doc, um, Dr. Do, uh, Destin, I know that you've worked at the university level as well and in school. So what are some initiatives that we need to um, to really kind of implement or introduce, if you will, in whether it's our curriculum, events or organizations um, around black history? And I can start. Let me just say one of the things that we've done is uh, we have um which I started about three or four years ago. We have this um, program every, it's not even a program, but every month at our staff meeting, we have uh, an initiative that we introduce a particular, whatever's going on culturally for that month. So as an example for this month, we're obviously talking about black history, but it's also heart heart healthy month. So whatever's going on in that particular month, we then celebrate and center um, culture. And so our communications department is responsible for uh, developing the curriculum that we're going to hear for that or the, the, the events or the topics we're going to hear for that particular month. And so this month, obviously, we were um, more intentional about um, black history. But I've done this now for the last three or four years because it was important as we had more diverse staff, we wanted to make sure that everybody felt belong, you know, be- that they belonged to the organization. So it's just not black history. It's just not Asian culture. It is everything. And people get such a great joy out of learning um, in that moment. And so that really is our way in which we lift up culture. We lift up difference. We lift, we lift up um, knowledge development, if you will. So we use this as a strategy to ensure that everybody is is included and people feel welcomed in the environment because it's just not about black people it really is about all people and so that was one of the things that we've done and we continue to do um, as we think about the the various ways that the organization from a cultural context can shift and belong well you know i love that and i was there and i and i've been in those sessions and they're always um, exciting and always uh, informative, you know, and as you were talking, I began to think about, you know, one of the things that I actually had to bring uh, a moment last night, I was lying in bed and I was thinking like, you know, how do we as a church begin to recognize um, change makers, mm-hmm. if you will? And so I laid there last night and, you know, pillow talk is always great. So I said to my wife, I said, I'm having this idea. And I, I said, I have this idea. 
and I want to do this, and I want to do this. So on Sunday, we're actually going to honor some individuals that we we sat there and we 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 brainstormed like what makes them a change agent, and then you know, and, and how, even young ones, the mm-hmm. young kids that are in school, what makes them a change agent and 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 a, and a change maker. And so we're actually on Sunday going to honor. Uh, some change makers that we recognize in our trip that may not ever be recognized by black America or all over the world, but recognizing their contributions to what they do in our city, in our ministry and around. And the other thing, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, you know, typically when we do Sunday school or Bible study and things like that, we don't typically talk about black history in those moments. Mm. We don't infuse those Mm. things. So if I was asked like an initiative or something, I started thinking about like being intentional about producing some materials that are there and available, uh, not just for February, but throughout knowing the contribution. So you can get beyond who made, who took the peanut and made peanut butter and did Mm -hmm. let's get beyond. There are some modern day, Sharon McDaniels, mm-hmm. who are change makers. Mm-hmm. And so you are one of the ones that are going to be honored on Sunday. I know your schedule is crazy, but we we immediately, when I thought about the over 40,000 children mm-hmm. whose lives have been touched through the work you've done, the organizations and the other things that have happened as a result, you are truly a change maker. You've made a difference you 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 you've suffered you've bled you've cried you've moaned and people don't know and I know a lot of the inside because I've walked closely with you Mm -hmm. and I've seen moments of your brokenness your humanity and and where you didn't understand but you kept pushing and so for 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 me you know that's one of the things that I'm saying you know I'm going to be more intentional as a leader to make sure that the white the black the Mexican all the different nationalities that are part of Love Fellowship Church really understands that the love of God crosses color it crosses uh, nationalities creed it crosses men women all of that but how do we intentionally infuse learning into our congregation and and more than because I, I was laughing and I'll be done doc and I'll let you go. But I, was, I, was, I, was, I was laughing because, you know, I was thinking about how the Bible describes Jesus mm-hmm. and it says he had hair as lamb's wool and his skin was bronze and da da da. And I'm thinking this European, uh, you know, version that we paint the picture with the long flowing hair and the light skin and he's blue eyed and all this. Hair. It contradicts, you know, when you start yeah. thinking about um, in Ethiopia, this, is how they you know so but anyway I don't want to get off topic but I was laughing at the fact that I said God some people are gonna get to heaven and really get shocked <laughs> when they find out you don't look nothing like they was thinking you was looking and so I'm going to be more intentional about making sure we infuse learning into our curriculum and into our materials that support black uh, people period so that we we know where we've come from so we can know where we're going. But even though I know your schedule is crazy, I just want to take this moment to honor you as a change maker and as a powerful woman whose voice will never be silenced because of the work that you've done. As you said, when you said it, and I I, I shook my head when you said this is legacy work. Mm -hmm. So because Mm -hmm. legacy is being laid and because it's being made and you're doing work, that legacy will continue. Your voice Think about that. We'll never be silenced in the earth because of the contributions that you have made. And they will live beyond your time. 
Well, you know, thank you so much for that. And I'm just humbled and honored. You know, I just tell people that I'm just walking in purpose and doing what my purpose work is. And so, you know, and, and as you were speaking, I was thinking about Frederick, Frederick, Frederick Douglass, Douglass, I'm sorry, who said that if there's no struggle, there's no progress. And so I'm just thinking about the fact that every day it's like, you know, what am I struggling for? There is a reason why um, there's a struggle because this is this is change making work. The fact that families can raise their own children, that we are pushing against the grain in a child welfare space that's unloving to black and brown families. And so the fact of the matter is I understand. And so as you indicated about the struggles and 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 the tears it's been well worth it. You know, if I had to do all, all over again, God chose me for this uh, season and a reason. And so, um, yeah. And, and so there is the, the, the progress is because there's been the struggle. And so I thank Frederick Douglass for that to say, we got to move forward and we got to move on. And so Dr. Destin, what about you? What are those things that you think that, you know, y'all already talked about this whole idea of being able to, um, create a curricul- curriculum that really centers one's biography to move forward. But what are some other things that you think we need to do in order to continue to advance the work and the history? Yeah, sure. Um, I certainly want to echo um, what Dr. Brock was saying. Um, you are well deserving of being, you know, Black History Month. You know, first Black woman to bring kinship work into an area. It is that that to me makes me recall of a quote that I wrote. Well, something I wrote that I tend to quote my own self here because I really like this <laughs> statement I said. That's okay. Was that, you know, if beauty to America is all things presented as innocent and colorblind in an otherwise racist society, then Black beauty is surely found in people who have been able to make poetry out of their invisibility and oppressive state of being. You know, you have made poetry out of your, you know, out of, out of a place that would render you invisible. You've made yourself visible. Uh, and I think that's important because the work that you do, because when that happens, it, that's what makes, that's where inspiration for others, you know, follow, you know, when a kid sees, you know, if, if, if black people were to not be doing any sort of inventing of their skills on the basketball court, you wouldn't really notice except that they were black, mm-hmm. but they made an effort that if they were on a predominantly white team, that they're going to go ahead and play the way they play. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, that, that's a cool move. Yes. And all of a sudden, I, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. So they made themselves visible in a place that would render them invisible by saying, you should just stay who you are, stay Black. But they made something out of that. And so I think that that's what I wanted to kind of point out was that, that, that what you've done certainly is all inspiring, and hence why I completely admire your work. Oh, thank um, you. Yes, to your question, um, curriculums and initiatives um, that I think I hope to implement, but also hope would, you know, take what other educators would also sort of take on is I'm thinking about the work of um, Goldie Muhammad. There, she is, mm-hmm. she is amazing. I don't amazing. know if you've ever read her work. She is phenomenal. And so her work of cultivating genius in the classroom has a lot to do with what I'm what I'm about to say here is that I think there's a lot of reframing of how we understand education. Um, and it goes back to what I was saying at the start was the idea of framing it as a point of survival, you know, um, as a mark of survival, when you think about anything about black history, because it raises questions, what are we surviving from? You know, mm-hmm. you can't avoid that we are in a contested space racially and it, you have to kind of engage that. So 
if it were someone who um, happens to be black, who is um, has done some contribution, you know, how is this a mark of uh, you know of our survival as black people? Then it 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 causes students to have to think, well, let me read about the person. Let me read the biography of a person. Is what was created contributing to our situation? This this keeps us away from the idea that all black people who make successes are considered valuable. There are things that you can make an argument for anything, for any black person who have made something. If it if it's going to be hurting us at the end of the day, that person ought not be, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really, it gets us to a critical thinking of what it really means when something is done for the benefit of black of the black you know black communities of our black communities and um and i think that such such ideas that are included in curriculum such a, a a reframing of how we think of things in terms of survival um and also um work uh, also activities that really really raise the question of systemic racism and how um, and why does it continue so in such a way where you can have, where you have students, um, I'm trying to make sense of this here, the idea that having to people, having to point out systemic racism to purveyors of systemic racism mm. to show how it's not, it's against their own self-interest mm-hmm. is what I think the work that needs to be done in class is that we as, you know, as students, having students think in those ways of how you can point that out to them rather than it be just, you know, preaching to the choir is what I think is where you want education to kind of go to be active, to not only be a passive, you know, to be a passive participant, but to learn and then to point out for those to end that sort of continuation of systemic racism. Cause I certainly don't think that the oppressed are the ones who are just continuing it on. Um, there are powers that be that need to be, you know, that need to be confronted. And if curriculum can kind of get people to kind of think in those ways to reframe it in terms of survival, to also see it as how do I get the purveyor of systemic racism to see it's against their own interests mm-hmm. is really the apex of education, um, you know, for us in America. You know, you um, speak of that, and I think that one of the ways in which corporate America has seen it or begin be, have begun to see it is that. There have been recent studies, and Deloitte um, is one of those spaces that really have done a remarkable job looking at the price of diversity um, Mm -hmm. in terms of how it's in the best interest of of corporate America, if you will, to have diverse thoughts and opinions and work, right, and people in spaces. And so because at the end of the day, it's how does this impact the bottom line? And so, um, so... you know, taking that as an example, um, in their annual report, they do a report just on race and, and, and their DEI work and, and just talking about um, the opportunity cost, if you will. And so the, the fact of the matter is that um, when you have diversity within institutions, one, you have just a diversity of thought, right, and then a, an approach. And how does that um impact the bottom line when you go to wall street you will see that level of diversity still not um as many um black folks or even women but you you see um it it, it, it's happening you know so part of my portfolio is that i do some work in the investment space and so we're looking at who we're investing with and 
who um, are the uh, uh, the GMs and the and the, the various managers, fund managers that we're working with. And you're seeing, we're, we're studying and tracking. Are there women? Are there blacks? Are there um, other nationalities, if you will? And so I think that um, using that idea that you're talking about, what what are the opportunities as a result of having a diverse, you know, um, edu- educational setting, if you will, um, incorporating that into our thoughts and into our the ecosystem in in you know a private school, as an example. Um, I think studying that and looking at the potential opportunities and um, the ability to attract funders or whatever the situation may be, I think is, is, is really good. So I really like what you're saying there, Dr. Destin. And might I add to that point is it's also something that's been tried and tested from the black community itself. Yes. Uh, the idea of having, um, you know, the oppressor see that, you know, the, the, the how things go against their own self-interest. And just, just, you know, a simple example. Um, Charles Hampton Houston and his student, you know, Thur- Thurgood Marshall, uh, with, 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 without the help of, um, not without the help, but for all that they have done in overturning you know, racial segregation could not have been done without the work of Polly Murray, uh, um, this um, Black American woman who, um, who really charted out all the laws all across um, the South. And so they, they just went from, from one place to another without her, her book called The Bible of like, you know, these racial segregated, segregated laws. The point is, is that for a long time, people have made moral arguments about why race, you know, racial segregation had been wrong, and they had not moved the needle in having to make those moral arguments. It was only until, you know, the idea that, you know, Thurgood Marshall, who uh, says, well, you know what, let's make them enforce it, mm-hmm. you know, you know, let's make them enforce it. And all of a sudden, people realize, like, it's too expensive to make the other or the school equal to that of a white school that are like, I, I'd, I'd rather just, I'd rather just get rid of racist segregation than pay all the money to kind of, you know, get them to rebuild, you know, build these schools as equal. Yes. So that, that's where that's coming from. The idea that having people see it's against their self-interest to, to, to maintain something called, you know, racism or racial segregation. And all of a sudden they were, you know, things uh, being confronted with that, then, you know, makes them have to kind of not become better people, but in, the practices and, 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 and uh, systemic, um, you know, ways in which um, we hurt the black community. And I think that's what, and that's what we're talking about. That, that's just a, what you were saying, which is a much more sophisticated way of doing that. Mm-hmm, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's part of the tradition of black people to have to say, you know, look what's ha- it works against what you what, what you would want. That's right. That's exactly right. And so we will link um, just to give our listeners an, an example of what Deloitte has done, because as I as I look in the corporate space, and again, a part of my scholarship is understanding organizational culture from this from this lens of anti racism, and so their 2023 report um, on diversity, equity, inclusion, and transparency. Um, they really um, highlight the reason why they're doing exactly what you were talking about, um, Doc, in the in the corporate space. So we'll link. Um, the uh, report in our podcast so that if people are interested in what, you know, corporate America is doing, at least in with Deloitte, because they really elevate the conversation. We'll put that in in, in our um, the link in our um, description of this conversation. So with that, I know that we are coming um, to a close. So I just want to ask you all just um, if you had that crystal ball, this is our last question. 
if you had that crystal ball, you could change the conditions of this society. What would be the one thing that you would change immediately? Well, that's you a good question. <laughs> uh, I, I was, well, you all were talking again, I was writing, and one of the things that I wrote was, uh, much has happened, but little has changed. Mm. Uh, much has happened, uh, but little has changed, as Dr. D was just saying, you know, and, and how we have to be so skillful and how we put it out there and how we try to get them to see. I think for me, if I could do something, if I had the crystal ball or the magic wand, I would really touch the hearts of men and women to allow the true meaning and essence of love to flow from their heart. Because the Bible says and God's word says that love flows without difference, without dissimulation. It's not different. It's it's pure. It's clean. And I think that's what I would do is try to infuse, give everybody a blood transfusion and infuse into their blood a true understanding and meaning of, of love. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where I would go with it. Well, that's excellent. Dr. Destin. You know, I think... You know, I've been I've been on this this whole reframing, you know, angle for quite a bit. It's where I am right now in terms of my writing with James Baldwin. And I think for people who are considered the oppressed in like and I'm thinking about places like the hood, the ghetto, I'm talking about people I mean that's what I'm talking about, but people who are in the low, that the the work that they do for their families perhaps needs to be reframed as they're they're just trying to do noble work for their kids. And I think that when, when people don't realize that they're backed into a corner doing, you know, struggling, that they feel worse about themselves Mm -hmm. because the only options they have is to do what is not seen as, you know, acceptable. And And I'm not encouraging, you know, deviant behavior, but what I'm saying is that, it's noble to help your kids. It's ho- it's noble to try to take care of your family. And and I think that that would go a long way in having a, you know, a community of people who feel that they're dejected and they can't be part of the conversation. So I, I, w- I would hope that we could reframe that, you know, what we would consider noble efforts, you know, for That's people really who good. have less. That's really good. I mean, and I, and I think mine kind of dovetails yours a bit. I, um, my hope in the reframing would be, again, I talked about being enough earlier. I want us to understand as a race and group of people that we ought to reject that we're not enough. Right. Absolutely. That we are more than enough when we think about the contributions of blacks in America, all the things that we were yet to be paid for. I'm still looking for my 40 acres and my mule. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that what we've done, the fabric of this America is off the backs of black people. We are more than enough. We were brilliant enough. We were brave enough. So I want people to just reframe to say, I am enough. You know, I remember back when I was growing up, Jesse Jackson would say, I am somebody. 
just remember I am somebody. And that's what I want us to get back to is that I am somebody and I am more than enough. That's, that's good stuff. Well, I think we have come to the end of this magnificent conversation. Dr. Destin, I can't thank you enough. You always bring that word, the drop the mic moment. Um, your brilliance is just um, so incredible. Um, I've learned every time I have the opportunity to be uh, with you, I'm learning. Same thing with you, Dr. Brock. So I just find this um, so incredible. I'm so blessed to be able to have and share this moment with you all. So thank you so much for today and for this conversation. And there'll be many more conversations of this ilk. Absolutely. Dr. D, as as Dr. Sharon has said, it's always a pleasure and an honor to have you here. And I've learned so much and I appreciate you. Thank you for all that you bring in, Dr. Sharon. It is my honor to always be in studio with you. And I always learn uh, from you. So I appreciate this opportunity. And to our listeners, we want you to know that the work is not done. We shall overcome one day. Until then. Be blessed and know we love you here on the What's Up Cause podcast. And whatever you do, don't give up the fight. Because truly, we shall overcome. I want to leave you with this song. It is the Greater St. Stephen's Mass Choir singing, We Shall Overcome. Until we meet again, I say to you, may God bless you and keep you, is our prayer. <laughs>